Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Caitlin. It's your birthday, so I brought you some hard-boiled eggs. Yes! Do you want to kiss and then have sex in my bathroom? Um, let's see where things go. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot to ask at the no, top. I appreciate, I appreciate, I think people should be a little more direct. Um, and I'm just being clear with my intentions, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say, like, <laughs> I just want to make sure that me, like, accepting the egg isn't, like, a metaphor in your eyes. And it's just mm. a validation that I am hungry and, I, and I'm never going to turn down a free egg. That's so fair. Honey, I'm not going to turn down a free egg under any circumstances. <laughs> Someone presents me. That's like a disgusting free food to offer. Ooh, I got I got eggs on the brain recently. Oh, I heard a wild story about eggs the other day. Okay, but Do that's but I'll tell you off pod. Okay. <laughs> well, all you listeners can just wonder what Jamie's little <laughs> egg story was. The intrigue. A friend told me a really long story about eggs, and it was um disgusting <gasps> disgusting okay well i can't wait to hear about it thanks well anyway this is our podcast in which we <laughs> should we um hey, that passed that passed oh my gosh look at us passing the bechtel test on your birthday two women talking about an egg anecdote <laughs> because i wasn't specific about the gender of the, the person who had the egg experience true mm -hmm. wow makes you think and eggs are um feminist icon eggs so <laughs> Feminist icon, the egg. Um, there's a great. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of YouTuber Jenny Nicholson, and she made a video about the Land Before Time movies and singles out this song in like hmm. Land Before Time '47, where they <laughs> ran out of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and like the fourth one yeah and so in the 47th one the villain is like a raptor who 
loves eggs and he sings a song about eggs whoa okay yeah i love that egg culture wow egg culture is really strong um okay so this is our podcast podcast? it's my birthday it's your birthday (laughs) happy birthday jamie um thanks a a few things right at the top so this is our show in which we examine movies through an intersectional feminist lens using the bechdel test as a jumping off point we can chat about that in a moment but i just want to point out that this is our second attempt at doing this episode on the shape of water (laughs) what if we failed again that'd be what if the egg thing was what what took us down this time first it was the 311 (laughs) cruise yeah let's tell let's let's tell them what happened because Mm. it was i think as as it was happening we were having so much fun but we were also like a little we were scaring ourselves a little bit yeah we're like it's never happened (laughs) unprecedented truly so what happened is that we were all set to record an episode on the shape of water totally prepped it wasn't a matrix situation the intentions were clear and we were going to do it we, however, both had a hard out. We only had about 90 minutes to record. And so we start recording, we start talking, and we were silly. We were feeling silly. We hadn't uh, recorded an episode in a while because I am on tour in Europe. So, you know, we were just catching up. The vibes were loose. And they were so loose that you got an email about a 311, the music group, yeah. cruise, which I still don't quite know. <laughs> what this could be 311 the band yeah 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 and so are they do they perform on the cruise is it 311 themed they like do. okay all of the above okay yeah they're so, definitely there i don't think that they have anything anything else going on needlessly cruel needlessly cruel <laughs> they're on the cruise is the point great right, right, right so this like this alert that you got about this cruise sent us on a spiral in which we did not recover from and we spent no a full hour and may never <laughs> and we will never recover from it so i i believe at the time of the release of this episode on the shape of water matrons will have been exposed to the episode that we are talking about right now this kind of we went off the rails and had a silly time episode i don't think and 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 uh, just to plug the matreon while we're uh, while we're here sure hello i think it's been a while since we've had a truly off the rails matreon mm-hmm. episode it's that's not usually how it goes we usually you know use the matreon to cover popular requests we don't usually have guests on the matreon it's a more loose format but it's the same Bechtel cast flavor sure uh, but occasionally I would say maybe once a year there's an episode that is just like what's happening <laughs> and this is that episode yeah and we hope you enjoy it but but um nonetheless <laughs> we had prepared for an episode so we're doing it now so I, we're I doing hope. it now I don't know I know I, th- I feel focused I feel good the egg thing we were in danger for a second but I <laughs> I texted you the egg anecdote. I got thank you. And so now you have it. Cool. And now I release that. Perfect. So from my mind. We can move on to talking about what the Bechtel test is, which is oh a God. media metric created by uh-huh. queer cartoonist Alison Bechtel. Yeah. Sometimes called the Bechtel Wallace test. Mm-hmm. Our version is this. Two characters of a marginalized gender mm-hmm. must have names. Mm-hmm. They must speak to each other. And their conversation has to be about something other than a man. And ideally, it's a substantial, meaningful conversation. 
Yes. So that's the criteria. Like two women discussing eggs. Exactly. Is an example. That's not the, let's be clear. There's other ways that the, te- <laughs> that's not the only way the test can work. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so today's episode is on the shape of water and this is your big birthday episode, Jamie. Yeah. So why don't you tell me, tell us all the listeners out there in the world, mm-hmm. your relationship with this movie. Well, yeah, I guess I am mostly telling newer listeners of the podcast because you you were there for <laughs> my Shape of Water phase, mm-hmm. and um, so were many of our uh, day one ride or dies. Yeah. Uh, had a whole thing. I did a stand-up joke about it for years. Really loved the fisherman from the shape of water was mm. like why is this horny mm-hmm. slash i love how horny this is yeah slash wow doug jones like that's a pandora's box of my favorite thing in the world which is obscure details about character actors mm-hmm. like there was just a lot of elements of this movie that was tick 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 ticking for me yeah um, i love del toro and i also love like I tend to skew more towards um, Del Toro's sentimental side of his catalog. Sure. Mainly just because not, uh, yeah, mainly just because I'm not much of an action person. Mm-hmm. So I was very excited. I was like, oh, this is maybe the most sentimental one yet. Mm. I, I really enjoyed this movie when it came out. I didn't think about it critically very much. Uh, I know, I feel like when it came out, I feel like it was like people generally liked it, but it was, I think, maybe considered to be a bit overrated in terms of how much awards attention it generated. Yeah. But I didn't really care. I mean, I was like Del Toro won an Oscar for this, and I feel like people never win the Oscar for the movie they're supposed to. The point is that they get it. Mm-hmm. So would it maybe have made sense for him to win for another movie? Sure. Pan's Labyrinth, perhaps? Pan's Labyrinth. Exactly. Mm. Um, I remember seeing a lot of takes and I, I'm like, you're not even wrong, but I just, <laughs> you know, leave, leave Del Toro alone. But they, that was all, the same year that Get Out came out. They're like, Get Out should have won Best Picture. Mm-hmm. That's the most impactful, memorable, good picture of 2017. You might be right about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so. I think, I mean, certainly cultural impact and good. Okay. But we're not <laughs> here to talk about, I don't want to hit the boys against each other. I love Shape of Water. It makes me cry. It was it was interesting to prepare this episode because I do think that there is a lot to talk about in terms of the subjects it doesn't uh, do well on or, or um, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, in the five years, I can't believe it's been five years since I was seeing I, Tanya and or Shape of Water in theaters <laughs> every, every day. day. <laughs> yeah. I guess also, I do think that this is a thing like where end of 2017 bit of a low for for your girl you know jim mm-hmm. and i feel like you know the movies that you become attached to when you're at a bit of a low in this era shape of water and i Tanya, they're just always a little special to you but sure. like yeah well, I, I think that there's a huge um conversation about uh, disability in particular and the portrayal of disability mm-hmm. in big movies that needs to be had about this movie i'm excited to get into it and i'm excited to get horny for the fish man again it's been a while i remember how much you loved his fish butt Ooh, 
and fish abs, I think. You were really isolating certain parts of his fish body. and I was objectifying him hard. Fish thigh gap, I want to say, as well. He did have a... Th- oh, my God, I forgot. Not the thigh gap. <laughs> I forgot that I was really fixated on the thigh gap. Yes. <laughs> Wow, I wonder what's happened to me because I wasn't. Maybe, maybe I'm making progress on my own mm. body issues because the thigh gap didn't leap out at me this time. Huh. So, progress? Question mark. We don't know. Could be. That said, yes, the the, the sexy fish does have a thigh gap, um, <laughs> and that's just uh, those are facts. indisputable truth. Yeah. I I don't think that they ever ended up making an action figure of him, which I feel like I need to check, but I feel like it, that was a miss. I, I was kind of just like, much like I was waiting for the Babu Frick plushie to come out. You're like, it's, it's going to happen. Yeah. It's just a matter of time. I thought that the having the fish man in my home would be inevitable, but hmm. I, it hasn't happened. Well, maybe you have to open your birthday present from me. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't. I, the life <laughs> Doug Jones pops out of a cake. I don't want to make any promises I can't keep. So maybe. What's, Who knows? What's your history with The Shape of Water? I saw it in theaters, I think only one time. Oh, unbelievable. I think my favorite thing about this movie is the production design. Yeah. And I like the story generally, but it's not my favorite of Del Toro's. And I just didn't feel that much of an attachment to it. I was kind of flabbergasted that it won Best Picture. Yeah. I thought there were other movies that were far more deserving. And I was, so I kind of like ended up having some resentment toward it because of that. And then I never engaged with it again. So I don't, I I like this movie. I don't love it. It's just, I feel kind of maybe even neutral, I suppose, about it these days. Um, But it was interesting revisiting it. I noticed, um, do you remember when we covered A Little Princess Mm -hmm. and there was like this green motif and everyone was like, what does green mean in this movie? Alfonso Cuaron, what are you, what are you trying green to say with the green? And he was like, nothing. I just like green. And I found, <laughs> I think maybe Del Toro was doing the same kind of thing because so much of this movie is green or like little objects or just little flourishes in the movie yeah. are green. And it has a very similar like, yeah, just like color palette and like lighting scheme as a little princess and I guess other of his movies. I mean, he's like pretty consistently like visually consistent in his work. And yeah, I think that's a a major strength of his again. But um, I was like, there's a lot of green in this movie. What does the green mean? And I just want, I'm hoping that someone asks Guillermo about it. And then he's just like, nothing. I just like green. (laughs) We, We can't get into it here because this is another yet another I think the other major derailer of our last episode Mm. but the timing of this episode is kind of fun uh not intentionally but because the new trailer for Guillermo's uh why am I okay I'm not on a first name (laughs) Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio movie just came out yeah we can't talk about Pinocchio anymore. <laughs> no, we cannot. Today. And if you don't know why, it's because we accidentally talked about Pinocchio instead of The Shape of Water <laughs> for, for like 45 minutes. minutes. Yes. Wow. I, I It's like genuinely like my chest tightened a little bit because I still want to talk about <laughs> Pinocchio Gate 2022. <laughs> Look it up. Battle of the Pinocchios. 
coming to the Matreon this November. Okay, Shape of War. Okay, so we both saw it in theaters. Yeah. Uh, I I really was attached to it at the time. I haven't watched it in a couple of years, honestly. The moment passed for me. Unlike mm. I, Tanya, which I still watch constantly, I don't watch The Shape of Water constantly. So it was sure. interesting to uh, revisit it with a few years' distance. Yeah. Still, I mean, the cast of this movie is rather wild. Oh, it's, character actor after character actor. Oh, uh, uh, just top marks across the board casting-wise. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about the movie. Let's do it. Uh, let's take a quick break first and then come back and talk about the movie. Ah. Okay, we'll be right back. <laughs> splash, splash. <laughs> This episode is made possible by PwC. It's getting hot out here. Moving the mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real-world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net-zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business. Create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. So shall we get into what's going on and what... Did we ever figure out... Do we figure out what the shape of water is? Oh, like what literally... Like the answer to that quite Like what is the shape of water? Is it just the shape of Doug Jones? Oh, with his butt and abs and thigh gap, and thigh gap. you mean <laughs> is it just that shape 
because I'm fine with that. Could be that. It could be something a little more poetic, like what isn't the shape of water or something, Ooh. you know? Whoa. What it, wow. and, and, or the and shape of water could be People didn't anything. ask that question. The shape of water is, is, is an idea. It's a lie you tell yourself. Oh, my gosh. Oh, anyway. Okay, <laughs> sorry. What happens in the movie? Okay, so we open on an image of like the interior of an apartment that's completely underwater. We are also getting voiceover from someone who tells us about Richard this tale. Jenkins. <laughs> yes. Uh, this tale of love and loss and a monster. And then we meet Eliza. That's Sally Hawkins, a.k.a. Mrs. Brown from Paddington. It is so wild. Lest we forget. I think we mentioned this in our Paddington episode mm-hmm. with Demi Adejuibe, um, that you get to see Mrs. Brown's nipples in this movie. It's very alarming Scandalous. for me. Paddington. Imagine Paddington seeing Shape of Water. He, um, I don't think he's allowed. Oh, my God. <laughs> he's too young. How old is Paddington? Paddington is a child question mark. Then why does he have the voice of an adult man? Because bears. And why can you? And then he can't be a child. Wait, hold on. He can't be a child because he goes to adult jail, and he has the voice of an adult um, man. He's an adult. He's. But that doesn't mean he should see his mother's nipples. I'm just but, saying. Well, he's yeah. An adult. He's an adult. Hmm. These are some interesting questions. Much like what is the shape of water? Uh, how old is Paddington? We'll never know. They should have sent Paddington. They would have sent him to Juvie, which also would have been interesting. Okay, we are getting into derailing territory. (laughs) We're going to focus up again. Okay. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. So we meet Eliza. We are in, I don't know if it's like the late 1950s, early 1960s. It's like Cold War era USA. Yeah, post-World War II. Mm-hmm. It seems like we're we're in the trenches because there's a lot of um, Eastern European space race. Russia-specific stuff. Me- yes, yes. And we are in Baltimore, Maryland. Ever heard of it? Yes. Oh, it's 1962. 62, okay. Canonically. Got it. Yeah. So we see Eliza wake up and go about her morning routine, which is that she boils an egg she draws herself a bath she jerks herself off Love it. and then she pays a visit to her neighbor giles played by richard jenkins and all of his cats as well a lot of cat visibility in the movie a lot of cat nipples as a result a lot (laughs) yes um and then one cat casualty which is worst part of the movie can't believe that's in the movie <sighs> okay. Yeah, of all the things to cut, that could be it. Okay, sorry. I yeah, yeah. Okay. It becomes clear that Eliza does not speak with like verbal language. She uses sign language to communicate. Yeah. She then gets on a bus and heads to work. She and her coworker Zelda, played by Octavia Spencer, work the yeah. night shift cleaning some kind of like science slash government facility mm-hmm. and then while eliza and zelda are working the kind of like scientists and lab technicians and various other personnel bring in this super secret super important asset that is going to be housed at this facility yes and whatever it is it's alive and it's in a large tank of water and it's a sexy fish and, guy and then it turns out to be a very sexy fish guy <laughs> 
Eliza is very curious about what this might be. (laughs) Eliza is very curious about what this might be. And she kind of like makes a tiny little bit of contact with it. We like see its hand. Uh, but then it's kind of like whisked away. And the crowd goes wild. <laughs> I saw this in theaters several times. And, you know, like you could tell who was there for certain reasons. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's all I have to say about that. Uh, yeah. 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 So we also meet Dr. Hofstetler, who's played by Michael Stahlbarg. And I don't know if we have covered a movie with Michael Stahlbarg in it. I but, don't know. I've, I mean, I know that Cat, oh, friend of the cast, Catherine Leon. Yes, <laughs> um, of of the Spy Kids episode, of course. Yeah, she had like a Michael Stolbarg newsletter for a while. Is that correct? Yeah, the Daily Barg, in which she would just <laughs> the Daily Barg <laughs> send out a photo of Michael Stolbarg to any subscribers of this newsletter. Just to say, hey, here's another photo. Is it still active? I don't think so. Oh. Yeah. Sad. There's, I mean, the the this movie's Michael game is very strong. Because we're about to get yeah. Michael Shannon playing his in his iconic role, Patriarchy, the one guy. Which mm-hmm. is a role he plays often and well. Yes. Yes, indeed. So Michael Stahlbarg is Dr. Hofstetler, who is the kind of lead scientist overseeing this asset. And Michael Shannon plays Strickland, who is a very sinister man overseeing the security of this asset. Yeah. Then we cut to the next day and Eliza and Giles go out for some pie. It's mostly so that Giles can try to flirt with the cute guy who works at the pie place. Mm-hmm. Then the pie, I love how the pie is disgusting. Like no matter, <laughs> like the pie is objectively bad. And the only reason that he's getting business is because there's a crush involved. There's a, there's a crush. I mean, oh. how much money have we all spent because of a crush i don't want to talk about it oh my god i went to (laughs) wrestlemania what anyways Uh, okay another story for another time because i know (laughs) Um, just chew on that (laughs) but the pie is green the green motif yeah is starting green green chemical goo Mm mm-hmm Yes. So uh, we see Eliza at another day at work. Something happens in the lab and Strickland rushes out with some of his fingers missing. Mm -hmm. And Eliza and Zelda are called in to clean up the bloody mess. And in this lab, there's a large pool of water that the asset uh, is maybe living in, swimming in. Um, And then Eliza meets this quote-unquote asset, which turns out to be a sexy fish man played by Doug Jones. Woohoo! And the crowd goes wild. Yes, we love him. He's so handsome. Oh, what a reveal. Oh, it is a great reveal. That is such an iconic scene. I feel like even if you don't like the movie or you think the movie is like a little bit forgettable, whatever, some of the the common criticisms of this movie, that it's just like not his best. Mm. Uh, The little peek that the fish guy does when he's looking at the egg and they're locking Mm. eyes and you're like, this rocks right that happens in a in a couple scenes from now oh okay sorry sorry i was getting ahead of myself because it's my favorite scene in the whole movie (laughs) when they i love a meet cute and this is a real this is a stressful meet cute but it's good yeah michael shannon is a a leo 
that I guess that makes sense. Is he now? Okay. It's on his birthday. By the time you're hearing this, he'll be, it'll be his birthday. Yeah, it's, and it's Leo season. I was going to make a hilarious joke that it's not a meat cute, it's a fish cute. Because in this case, meat uh, is right. like M-E-A-T. It's a pesca, pesca, pesca cute. Pesca, pesca cute. Pesca cute. <laughs> wow, Michael wow. Shannon Leo. Something to think about. Mm-hmm. Something to think about. Mm-hmm. So in this first little encounter here, Eliza and the fish man have kind of a little moment, but they are interrupted when someone comes in and he disappears into his tank of water. Mm -hmm. Um, So the next day, Eliza goes back into the lab and comes face to face with the fish man. This is the scene you're talking about. Yeah. And at first he's like, rawr. But then she offers him one of her hard boiled eggs. And then he's like, rawr. And then he's, he's like, what now? And he grabs it and then he dives off into the pool. Yeah. Uh, then Strickland has a talk with Eliza and Zelda. He points out the scars on Eliza's neck and we learn that they are from an injury she sustained when she was a baby and it's why she is not able to speak. Right. Then Eliza continues to visit the fish man under the guise of like cleaning the lab. Uh But basically there's a montage where she brings him a bunch of eggs she plays music for him she teaches him some sign language they're falling in love and it gets pretty flirty they're falling in love she dances and he's like whoa good dance (laughs) it's it's getting it's getting pretty spicy in the lab Mm -hmm. and who sees this but dr hofstetler and then it's revealed that he is a russian spy who gives information about the fishman to his Soviet comrades. But dun, his whole dun, thing dun. is like, yeah, I'm a spy, but also I love science. And I think this fishman should be protected and like studied. And, you know, he's not like other spies. He's not like the other spies. And we'll, cu- I don't know if I like figured out a way exactly to work this into the recap, but the whole reason that they have captured this fish man is that he is able to kind of switch his breathing mechanisms from like breathing with gills underwater to breathing presumably with lungs above water like uh, the air yes and they're studying this because again both the u.s and the soviet union are in this space race and they're trying to figure out oh can we like use the anatomy of this fish man and kind of replicate that so that we can like kind of use like how do astronauts breathe in space kind of thing. So they're like mm. studying that. Right. Any way. I didn't really recognize that that was what they were studying. And I've seen this movie <laughs> 10 times. <laughs> it's hard when the well, movie makes you, you horny. Know. There's a lot of things that just kind of whoop right over your head. The, and that's okay. I don't go kind of come to this movie for science. <laughs> All right, so one day Eliza sees Strickland torturing the fish man and then some military personnel come in and, oh, this is when we find out that, like, they're studying him to give the Americans an edge against the Soviets in the space race. So Strickland wants to basically kill the fish man and dissect it 
Dr. Hofstetler is like, no. And Eliza overhears all of this. So she starts to hatch a plan to rescue the fish man because she feels this very intense connection with him. Yeah. Not only have they been like flirting romantically, mm-hmm. but she feels that they are very similar in that they can't speak with like verbal language, but they can still communicate with each other. Uh-huh. And she f- feels that he sees her for what and who she truly is in a way that she doesn't feel other people see her exactly. Right. So she begs for Giles to help her with this rescue mission, which he refuses at first, but then he changes his mind and agrees to help. So they start to plan out this like heist slash rescue. And then it's time to execute it. Uh, Dr. Hofstetler realizes what Eliza is doing and decides to help her get the fish man out of his tank. Yeah. But Strickland starts to figure out that something's going on, as does Zelda, who was like, Eliza, what are you doing? But then she helps Eliza. Yeah. Uh, Strickland does the opposite. Meanwhile, Michael Shannon's fingers are rotting off of his body. <laughs> and you're like, it's a metaphor, but it's still nasty to look at. Yucky, uh, yucky, yucky. And then you're just like, wow, who's the real? I mean, it's like this movie, you very much like know where it's going and what it's trying to tell you. Mm-hmm. But I kind of enjoy a lot of parts of it. When you see the fingers start to fall off, you're like, he's the bad guy. Wait Ooh, a second. Is this a... Hang on. He's the monster. Subversion? Yes. yes yeah so eliza and giles successfully get the fish man into this van that giles is driving and they escape but uh michael shannon is like who what is what's happening bang bang and he's like firing after them but he doesn't know who has committed this (laughs) robbery (laughs) of the fish man it reminds me very much did you ever no you you wouldn't have watched hey arnold right um, I I know of I know I know it, but I didn't. Yeah, I didn't really watch it. The scene where they're um getting the fish man out of the lab reminds me very much, and I doubt that this was an inspiration of Del Toro's. It's just similar, but one of my favorite mm. episodes of Hey Arnold, shout out Hey Arnold heads, is uh mm-hmm. when Arnold's grandma, who's like kind of this um, renegade. They go to the aquarium and they see a a big sea turtle and like there's graffiti all over his shell. He's not being well taken care of. He's really sad. Mm -hmm. And then they help the Mm -hmm. sea turtle escape into the sea. Mm -hmm. And it's a similar heist. And it's also a similar like he was bred to be captive. How is he going to survive in the wild? That TV show is capturing heavy themes for children. Seriously. Yeah. There's a whole section on Wikipedia, scholarly journal, Wikipedia, mm-hmm. where it's like various people accusing Del Toro of plagiarism because apparently there are several existing movies or plays or things like that that uh, have very similar stories. Uh, so, it, uh, to what degree? To uh, like people having like, sex with a fish? Because that might just be parallel thinking. <laughs> Right. And I mean, every everything was like concluded as it was just parallel thinking and that like he didn't plagiarize anything. But like one of them, for example, is I think it was a movie 
about a cleaning lady who helps a dolphin escape from a facility. Oh. I, I forget what the other ones were. I but like helping helping uh, any captive animal escape a zoo aquarium type situation, that's a pretty common theme. It's just that you're not I usually mean, like dating them. I think that's kind of the <laughs> X factor. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure no one had sex with Willie in the movie Free Willy. Whoa. And, but that's what that movie is. But about, I haven't seen that Willie movie escape. So, but we don't know. <laughs> I forgot about, uh, I forgot about Free Willy. Who's in Free Willy? I just I, feel like there's like Who's in You know what? Free I'm Willy. It's probably like Devin Sawa or something. I actually never oh, okay. saw Free Willy. I feel like I have probably seen I've probably been in the room when Free Willy was on but Free Willy was like not really my jam and I'm like I don't even know what I'm saying when I say that I don't know where I got it stars Jason James Richter who who's that (laughs) Lori Petty's in it um yeah I don't know where I got Devin Sawa I feel like it was probably just like and with all due respect to Jason James Richter, um, you know, I, a young man with bangs. I feel like that's mm-hmm. Devin Sawa coded. I understand where you were going. It was the 90s after all. That infinity bang, that cowlick. Mm. Where did that go? How did everyone suppress their cowlick? <laughs> <laughs> I, I still have mine. <laughs> I still you have know. mine too. It's a problem. The uh, I also <laughs> wanted to say really quick on the topic of um, fish sex stories. Yeah, there was uh-huh. another piece of popular media that came out around the same time about a woman falling in love with a fish. I believe a fish man. Mm-hmm. The Pisces, which is a book by Melissa Broder. I haven't read it, but oh. it was like a pretty popular novel that came out um a couple years ago so for for whatever reason this is on the minds and hearts of the collective (laughs) beautiful yeah that's a beautiful story thank you i didn't write um when are they oh no i was gonna say something but it's gonna derail the episode (laughs) wait say it really quick though (laughs) okay and then we just have to move on when is the biopic coming out about me uh-huh. watching the animated movie Legend of Titanic and falling in love with tentacles, the oh giant octopus? <laughs> Not tentacles. You can't just bring up tentacles. You're so right. That does derail everything. <laughs> tentacles. Okay, really, 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 really quick. Again, <laughs> listeners of the Matreon will already know. Tentacles is kind of Bechtel cast canon. Yeah. So there's an animated movie about Titanic. It was made in like five different countries. It's very kind of dissonant uh, in terms of it. It, it is yeah. like a mix of uh, an American tale because there it's there's mice on the Titanic. And then there's also the plot of the movie Titanic sort of happening. Yes, correct. as well. And then what's the third movie? There's like a third. It's like sort of vaguely Little Mermaid-ish, but like yes. not really. But you do see a lot of like... That's te- the tentacles part. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so there's a lot of underwater character, like <laughs> major sharks, characters, like mean, sharks and... A- the sharks are bullies. <laughs> Look, they weren't thinking too hard. Like, okay, yes. So it's like the Little Mermaid story, the American Tales story, and then just regular Titanic. And it's all taking place on the Titanic. It is yeah. Uh, sensory overload. The bullied... Uh, <laughs> in this movie 
the Titanic doesn't go the way you're expecting because we've been mm-hmm. we've been gassed up with this for the most of the movie seemingly unrelated story of uh, yeah. a gigantic octopus who kind of fluctuates <laughs> in size throughout the movie. Sometimes he's sure. just the size of a regular octopus. Sometimes he's the size of mm-hmm. the Empire State Building, or let's say the Titanic <laughs> or Titanic. Uh, <laughs> So anyways, he's getting bullied, but then he like believe, learns to believe in himself. His name's Tentacles. Full. Mm-hmm. And then he um he whole he's so he's Titanic sized when it suits him. Yeah. And he ends up holding the Titanic together with all of his muscles. His, his tentacles are so muscly. All Ew. his tentacle might. <laughs> and he's also like fleshy colored he's pink yeah he's and so in this version of the titanic narrative there are no casualties everyone on titanic survives because he holds the ship together after it hits the iceberg and then breaks in half but he's like no 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 not on my watch i'm tentacles (laughs) and then he saves everyone so anyway that's legend of titanic it's on youtube if you want to watch it which you should yeah back to shape of water i would watch that movie of that you described though thank you me falling in love with tentacles which i have done so where's the biopic all right so tentacles eliza brings the fish man back to i think they're in giles's apartment and they put him in the bathtub so he's like kind of chilling there and eliza's plan is to release him into the ocean on the 10th of the month when the water in the canal will be high enough from the rains to spill into the ocean. So they're going to release him when that happens. Mm -hmm. So back at the facility, Eliza and Zelda have to just like play it cool. They have to pretend like they don't know what's going on, which works out pretty well because the people who work at the facility think that a like highly trained special forces like soviet group of people pulled off this heist although strickland is like suspicious and he's like something doesn't add up here and he's also fixated on um for for nasty exploitative reasons he's Mm. fixated on eliza yes so back at giles's the fish man ventures out of the tub and he does eat one of Giles's cats, which Giles does not really have much of a reaction to, I will say. He really takes it in stride <laughs> in a way that it's like, I don't think it would have been inappropriate or even mean to have a bigger reaction than that. I think he's mm. he's he's great about it, but you're like, wow, did you even like was did he just kill your least favorite cat? Because he does have, like, five cats or something like that. Brutal. Which... Brutal. That's very, like, um, Victorian-era approach to having children vibe. <laughs> Where you're like, well, I still have enough laborers for the farm. You're like, geez, seems a little callous. Yeah. So he eats one of Giles's cats, and then he scratches Giles's <laughs> arm, and then runs away. So Eliza rushes home and finds the fish man in the nearby movie theater, She brings him back, puts him in the bathtub, and then they have this sexy little moment. And then Eliza gets naked and gets into the bathtub with him. Cut to her on the bus with a big smile on her face. And then at work, she uses sign language to explain to Zelda that the fish man has a fish dick that comes out of a little opening in his thigh gap. Top tier 
reaction from Octavia Spencer um, <laughs> EGOT that it's <laughs> she's yeah she's I wish that her role was um it's I mean it's like pretty big in this movie but I wish I wish it was even mm. bigger um mm-hmm. but that that reaction alone I mean yeah what can you say it's perfect no notes so then Eliza goes home again and this is when we get the famous scene where Sally Hawkins fills the entire bathroom with water and fucks the fish man on screen, which causes all of this leaking. And Giles is like, what the fuck? And he opens the door and all the water gushes out. Very similar to a scene in Paddington when Paddington's in a bathroom full of water, hijinks ensue, and then the door opens and all the water comes gushing out only this time which i'm like in this movie is that a metaphor for like them orgasming not sure oh just a wow makes you think yeah it could be could be and then so giles is like what and then eliza is like hugging the fish man and then she just kind of like smiles and shrugs she's like like, it is what it is (laughs) also it turns out that the fish man has healing powers and I kind of always forget that he has healing powers. Yeah, because it's introduced kind of late into the movie. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll mention this in, in the discussion. But at one point, we learned that some entity was like digging for oil in the Amazon South rainforest. America. They yeah. found this fish man and brought it back to this facility. But they describe that this fish man was like revered as a god by the indigenous people living in the Amazon. Mm -hmm. And it could be that he was like revered as a god because he has these healing powers. This is all kind of like very glossed over. And if like you get up to go to the bathroom during that scene, like you will entirely miss this part. But basically he has these healing powers. He heals Giles's scratch on his arm. He also... Uh, grows some hair on Giles's bald head, which we know that he's very self-conscious about. Right. And then I kind of forgot. I always forget about that as well. Yeah. And then uh, something I always forget about. There's this like kind of fantasy scene where Eliza speaks, and then she starts singing. And then there's like this whole like black and white fantasy song and dance scene between yeah. her and the fish man, and they're dancing, and it's like very like classic Hollywood. There's some issues with that scene, kind of thing. That's another thing where I was just like, mm, there was better ways to. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, um, Mm -hmm. we'll we'll get to that too. Yeah, I kind of that was like heavily featured in the marketing for this movie, but I kind of forget about it because it's such a, I think, uh, cuttable moment, throwaway moment. Yeah. Yeah, you're like, oh, this is a very expensive cutaway. (laughs) Right. Meanwhile, at the lab, everyone is like, "Where's the fish? We got to find the fish," and the Soviets are like, "Hey, Michael Stahlbarg." Where's the fish? We want its dead body. So everyone's looking for the fish. Hashtag where's the fish is trending on 1962 <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Then we realize that the fish man's health is failing and he needs to be released into the ocean ASAP. There's a scene where Hofstetler's Soviet comrades shoot him, but then Strickland shows up and he kills the comrades and he's like, what the fuck, Hofstetler? You're a spy. You were speaking Russian. And then as Hofstetler is 
dying, he lets it slip that it was the cleaning crew who stole the fish man. And Strickland realizes, oh, it must have been Eliza and Zelda. Yeah. I wanted wanted a vibe check on this. I was sort of like uh, feeling betrayed by Hofstetler at the end because like he's dying. Why sell them out at that point? Like for what reason? I had the same thought. I feel like that was a little bit of narrative convenience of like we need to get Michael Shannon this info. But I felt like that was like undercutting who we had grown to find that character to be like a complicated, like he wouldn't give away the agendas of people who's like, who he felt were good and acting toward the greater good. And that right. was like his whole journey. Cause Octavia Spencer, because this movie is like really lets you know how it feels about things. Like mm-hmm. Octavia Spencer literally says to his face, you are a good man. <laughs> and then he does that. It was dissonant. I agree. It just felt like a plot device almost. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's not the biggest deal, but I was, I always, I like, I, that's another moment that I forget about where you're just like, couldn't he have just like found some evidence instead of like undercutting that whole, cause I thought that was like I a agree. really good job by Michael Stolbarg too. I wonder what the Daily Barg had to say about it. <laughs> I don't remember, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm going to guess positive. <laughs> But yeah, no, I had the same thought. But this allows Strickland to like kind of figure out that it was Eliza and Zelda who had something to do with the fish man being stolen. So first he goes to Zelda's house to question her. Mm-hmm. And her husband tells Strickland that it was Eliza who was responsible for this, you know, the stealing of the fish man. Right. So then Strickland goes to Eliza's but she and Giles have already left to go release the fishman into the water. But Strickland figures out where they're headed because they're going to the docks mm-hmm. and he goes after them. Cut to the docks. Eliza and the fishman are saying goodbye. Strickland shows up. He shoots the fishman. He shoots Eliza. But then the fishman uses his healing powers to heal himself. He slashes Strickland's throat and then he takes and then great Michael Shannon line that you're like, he's really delivering this line that you're like, what? He's like, you are a <laughs> you god. Are god. Oh, I can't wait for ten out of ten. Do you remember me? how Michael Shannon was literally an eight mile? Sometimes I just forget how deep his filmography is. <gasps> no, I don't remember that. He's in Kangaroo Jack and Eight Mile. What a career! Wow. I know. <laughs> what can't he do? His early can- filmography is really funny because he was just in like he all over the place cecil b demented pearl harbor vanilla sky eight mile mm. kangaroo jack bad boys 2 he was in a movie whoa he was in a movie called zamboni man what what a legend wow it's a, it's a short film but he played walt the zamboni man whoa i wonder if that's about a man who gets bitten by a radioactive zamboni <laughs> that would be really wait <laughs> wait hold on we have to collaborate on this because it could turn into like an, an ice situation. Well, yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. Zamboni so man. Possibilities. Sorry. <laughs> I was just looking at his filmography to just confirm that it was in fact him and that I remember seeing an eight mile 20 years ago. Yeah, I guess you're right. It was. Um, okay. So Strickland is murdered by the fish man and then the fish man takes Eliza's limp body and jumps into the water with her. Uh, she seems to be dying, but he turns the scars on her neck into gills. 
and then she seems to come back to life and she's healed. Although, so one interpretation is that she's alive and they live happily ever after underwater together. Another interpretation is that that's kind of like a fantasy and she actually dies. Kind of like how Pan's Labyrinth ends. Yeah. Where the main character in that movie dies but then she's kind of like reborn as this princess in labyrinth world um anyway so different interpretations of the end but that is how the movie ends so let's take another break and we will come back to discuss bean dad the dress 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
And we're, we're back. back. I just had a, during the break, I, you know, dipped in my little pool, my little tank of water, and I had a little bath. The tank of water. <laughs> the tank of water. Okay. Where shall we begin? I I would, uh, if it's okay with you, I would like to start with uh, talking about, I think, the, the main criticism surrounding this movie that mm. is extremely valid. I, I, I'm trying to, like, put myself in... 2017 brain I, I remember this being discussed when the mm-hmm. movie came out but mm-hmm. it was not central discussion at all sure and so I, I want to talk a little bit about how uh, disability is portrayed in this movie as always mm-hmm. we're interested if you if if we have listeners with disabilities that would like to share their perspective I've seen kind of a wide variety of mm-hmm. takes on it but Same. I mean the first the first issue is one that we've discussed on the show before, which is, you know, Eliza is, does not speak. She has a disability and she's not played by a disabled actor. Right. So this is something that happens all the time. I feel like it's very often presented as like, obviously, there are many, many, many talented disabled actors that would have been more appropriate for this role. But I feel mm-hmm. like instead there's, I, I read a lot to this effect and we've discussed it on the show before. There's sometimes like disabled parts are taken by able-bodied actors as like a challenge and it's mm-hmm. kind of an Oscar, it's been sort of framed as like an Oscar Beatty thing to do. Um, Definitely. And I think that in the case of Sally Hawkins, that's um, exactly how it played out. Right. And I, I think a lot of people have commented on her good performance. I don't know, like, I don't know if that's the right word. But like, I mean, I do think that she does a good job in the movie. But Although a lot of people have also pointed out that it's pretty obvious that she is not fluent or even very good at sign language um (laughs) i was also having trouble confirming if she uses american sign language i saw um some people saying that the sign that she uses in the movie is not entirely asl but like some of it is but then other people uh, have confirmed that she is using asl i don't know enough about it to know firsthand so i i couldn't confirm if that is the type of sign she's using i was also yeah i was seeing criticism around it but i I couldn't find specificity so if there's if there's anyone listening that could answer that i mean i'm very curious i just wasn't yeah yeah i wasn't able to find it yes so that's the first problem of and again we've talked about this a lot on the show of a non-disabled actor being cast to play a character who is disabled And I think that is one of the problems because basically everyone who worked on this movie is an able-bodied person. And as far as like consultants being brought in, Mm -hmm. that didn't really happen. So I was like, I wasn't, I was looking for any uh, (laughs) indication that that had happened and it had, which is, I mean, I think for 2017 in particular, I was pretty surprised at that seems like a a really glaring mistake you would have thought right so uh, I'm pulling this from a HuffPost piece entitled how the shape of water makes people with disabilities feel less human by Elise Wanshell it it basically says that HuffPost reached out to Fox Searchlight to ask 
whether there were any disabled consultants involved with the film. And a representative of the film said that, like basically in response to that question, said that two ASL coaches were involved during the production, but that appears to be the only consultants. So Right, which this seems like a pretty clear cut case of um there should that like you you would need to have consultants involved from the very very beginning not just as it pertains to working with actors which is definitely important and it sounds like maybe Sally Hawkins didn't have enough time to even get to where she needed to be on that front um, which mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of uh because I I don't I don't know ASL and so I that seems really frustrating for someone who who does speak ASL to see it presented in this kind of like sloppy way, which I'm not saying that's the fault of the consultants. Who knows? But it's like, you know, if, if Del Toro wants to have a disabled protagonist, great. Mm-hmm. But then you need to bring in a consultant or even better, a co-writer who mm-hmm. can shape that <gasps> story from the jump shape and not just, you know the script shouldn't be locked without consulting like yes and be- because that did not appear to happen there are some issues with the way disability is represented in the movie um yeah there seemed to be a lot of c- conflicting feelings from a lot of members of the disabled community because on one hand yeah. there's like oh you know we're seeing um a disabled woman with sexuality on screen that never happens but then there's a whole lot of other criticism that we will get into um i would recommend everyone read a piece by elsa yes um, johnson henry i'm i'm not sure if i pronounced that correctly i really love that piece yes so she's a speculative fiction author and editor who is legally blind and deaf she wrote a piece about this movie entitled i belong where the people are disability in the shape of water on tor.com t-o-r.com tor is my public the publisher of the hot dog book famously oh my gosh no way yeah Yeah. wow congrats Mm -hmm. (laughs) so she wrote this great piece and i want to pull some quotes from it I have, I feel like I basically copy pasted the essay into my notes because it's really, really like thoughtful and comprehensive. It's great. For sure. Let's exchange quotes, shall we? Let's Um, let's do it. So the first one I wanted to share is this. Elsa says, quote, the first time in years that I have seen a disabled woman sexually desired and indeed sexually active and loved in a film is by a monster. Monsterhood and disability are an extra... In, oh no, this word, I never can say it. Ooh, in- I have, wait, inextricably. I have, inex- inextricably. Inextricably. Yeah. It's, wow. you, it's, you, you gotta really enter it with inextricably. confidence. <laughs> inextricably. Killed it. Wow. Okay, so inextricably linked in our genre. Characters like Snoke are barely human. Snoke from Star Wars. Andy Serkis. Um, are barely human. Their faces marred by scars, which signal that they are evil. Disability and disfigurement are tied together as one. Elsa's scars on her neck have been read as gills by some, a hint that her disability is, in fact, monsterhood all on its own. Right. Unquote. So that's, and this is something that we've talked about a fair share 
on the podcast, especially when it comes to horror movies, because horror is a genre yeah. that is very, very guilty of this. Yeah. But it's not limited to horror movies, like, you know, that genre at all. This is something that spans across genre where disability or disfigurement will be linked to a villainous behavior. So um, mm. that's kind of like... <laughs> where the movie and it it depends on how you interpret things but like this is definitely one sure kind of reading of the film yeah I, I want to share a quote from that essay as well because I I do think that it's like the core issue because I and I do want to like yeah acknowledge that uh, a lot of what I was reading around this movie and I think we should talk about this more in detail when we get to talking about sex anyways yeah but mm-hmm. You know, ha- having uh, I, like I, I think that it's Elsa uh, Strensen, Strensen Henry, who wrote that like she had never seen a mainstream movie where a woman with a disability was centered as being sexually desirable as like initiating sex and mm. like, which I think is kind of a cool element of their relationship. Is it is very motivated by Eliza. Um, Kristen Lopez wrote a piece in The Hollywood uh, Reporter in which this is like a a big um, talking point of her piece of like the the sexuality of disabled characters and how it's Mm. very rare to see. So, yeah. But uh, yeah, we can we'll we'll cover that more when we talk about sex, baby. Sexy sex. (laughs) Let's talk about fish sex, baby. Um, (laughs) But I did want to share that. Yeah. Like the the use of Eliza's disability seems to be strictly not strictly but a lot of it is used as a metaphorical purpose versus just representing Mm. a disabled character in the world which is patronizing as many writers has have um mentioned Mm -hmm. you know i i'm not saying that i think that del toro intended it that way but it's definitely you know he presents this movie as a fairy tale and fairy tales very often do this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to share a little more of Elsa Shenson Henry's essay that, you know, sort of lands on like, it's ultimately, you know, Eliza isn't loved by a member of her own species. And the only way mm-hmm. that she's able to find acceptance is uh, through possibly dying and definitely being with someone who is not of our own species. Mm-hmm. So she writes, uh, quote, society says that disability makes us lesser, makes us uneven humans. The worst of humanity looks at me with my one clouded eye and my one hearing ear. It looks at me and says, I am half of what I could be. This isn't a projection. I don't feel less than whole. I've had people tell me that I am lesser than them, that they couldn't imagine what it would be to inhabit my body, that they would rather die than experience what it is like to live in a disabled body, unquote. Mm-hmm. And And it does feel to me, and this came up in a a couple of essays that I read, that Eliza says that directly in that speech that she gives to Giles of why she loves the fish man so much is like she says he doesn't, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like he doesn't know what I lack. So she's explicitly Mm -hmm. saying that she views her own disability as her lacking something versus that being the the messaging that society has projected at her her whole life. Mm -hmm. But it's like the way that it's written makes it canonically 
she views her own disability as being deficient. A, a lack. Uh, she also, I think in, in the movie, Eliza says that she is incomplete. Yes. Which, again, if you had consultants, disabled consultants on the movie, a line of dialogue like that, I don't think would be in the movie. It would be... Mm, yeah. Eliza's feelings about her disability, I think, would be framed very differently if it were coming from the perspective of actual disabled people who would have a, just a more informed perspective on how disabled people view and feel about their disabilities. So there's a quote from a writer named Amy Lowe in CBC, mm-hmm. shout out Canada, um, <laughs> that I thought sort of like tied that together pretty well. Uh, She said, quote, I found that really unfortunate because it sort of reproduces the stereotype that nonverbal people can't express themselves in a way that's actually comfortable or natural for them. And then it also reproduces the stereotype that disability is like a cage, unquote. Mm -hmm. So I think that the, I mean, Eliza's whole storyline kind of lends itself to viewing her disability as a metaphorical storytelling tool rather than an element of who she is as a person. Mm-hmm. And the other moment that seems to draw the most criticism we've already talked about briefly, which is the like old Hollywood flashback thing, which I would um. hazard a guess was like Del Toro. I feel like, you know, like auteurs often like romanticize past Hollywood stuff by a lot. And it's probably just like, oh, wouldn't this be cool? But the text of that scene is that Eliza is sitting across from the fish man overcome with how much she loves him. Mm-hmm. And then for one scene, she quote unquote sheds her disability and is mm-hmm. able to use her voice to sing and they dance. And like, it's this like fantasy sequence, but the the mm-hmm. core of the fantasy is like romanticizing her shedding her disability instead of, right. I feel like you can still have that, same unmemorable sequence (laughs) of them dancing in a way that doesn't right exactly like it without it romanticizing like oh she would be it it, I feel like it implies that she would be so much happier right if she could speak Mm -hmm. but yeah and and that was on I mean that's not something that occurred to me the first time I saw the movie but it's like absolutely true Mm -hmm. and again like you're saying like if there had there been consultants or co-writers and during the writing process I think that that would have been a very very easy thing to catch and again like another good reason to cast actors right who have the disabilities that you're portraying on screen because then I mean that's not to say that like because oftentimes when actors try to advocate for themselves they're labeled as difficult and then they might get fired right but at least you would have yet another perspective saying well, that doesn't really jive with how people actually feel about things. So, And I want to believe that like Del Toro is an empathetic enough filmmaker to be able to receive that. Um, right. Maybe I'm just romanticizing totally. him in my mind, but I'm Ugh. like, I feel like he would be receptive to it. I just, mm-hmm. I just am like, but it's, it is so, so wild that uh, I feel like this is, you know, it's, it's the auteur thing again, you know, where mm-hmm. it's just like, some people, no matter how iconic, incredible, need to be given notes and people don't give them to them because they're 
um, special directors. Too many yes men out there. Yeah. Um, I would argue that the way the movie ends is also yes, just kind of very telling of the representation of disability in this story. Because as I often tell mm-hmm. my screenwriting students, Whoop. the way a movie ends does a lot to say how this movie feels about like the story it was telling or like, you know, the kind of the theme of the movie is usually very clearly communicated in the final images and final moments of the movie. Mm -hmm. So like what you're trying to say with your narrative usually is like very clear at the very end. So what happens at the end is Eliza is, well, maybe dies, but also maybe is turned into a fish person and then lives happily ever with her fish boyfriend under the sea. So let's say, let's go with that interpretation, Yeah, which going back to Elsa's piece in Tor.com, she kind of comments on how the end suggests that like disabled people should go and be with their own kind and says, quote, I wish that I could just say, well, that's fantasy and move on. But I can't. Not when I've literally never seen a movie in which a disabled woman is desired by a non-disabled partner. Not when I know that my body is seen as less than desirable. Not when I know that subconsciously this film, it means she deserves a freak like her, not a human like her. Unquote. And then um, just to share one more quote from uh, this piece, Elsa says, quote, The conflict for me is here. That on one hand, I have always known in my soul that able-bodied people see me as half of them, that they see me as less than whole, which is why I hate that in media such as this, we can only be desired by those who don't know any better, unquote. So Mm -hmm. the way the movie ends, the whole romance between Eliza and the fish man, these are the implications. Yeah, it's the ending... And also, this is kind of a movie that, like, I don't always remember how it ends. And, like, after not seeing it for a couple of years, I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they die. Like, it's, it kind of reminds me. I, I feel like it, that is a patronizing ending mm-hmm. for a disabled character. And it also was giving me a little, like, another, like, classic tragic fairy tale element where like the little mermaid turns to foam at the end of mm. the story where it's just it also feels like there's um maybe a, a whiff of misogyny mixed in there as well <laughs> which is again like a confusing thing to happen in a movie that seems to be really wanting to present itself and the way it was marketed mm-hmm. and the way it was like award seasoned was as a progressive reimagining of a fairy tale. Yeah. So if that is the tack you are taking in promoting your movie, um, a glaring <laughs> kind of turning, turning away when it comes to disability is, uh, I, th- I think, you know, kind of irresponsible and, worthy of further discussion because it is I mean and we've been guilty of this in in like the early Bechtel cast days Um, disability is so often left out of film criticism and discussion 
and mm-hmm. for a movie that's marketing itself as like, uh, you know, because this movie does try to, and I think successfully in, in many cases, address a lot of society's prejudices. And I think it does think it's saying something about disability, but mm-hmm. it rings patronizing because it's like, oh, look, she got accepted by somebody and mm-hmm. like by a big old fish. And you're like, <laughs> well, fuck you. kind of. And But like this, this movie does... I guess I'm kind of transitioning into a different bucket of discussion. Sure, yeah. Like this movie does at least touch on racism because mm-hmm. this is happening in 1962 around the civil rights era that we see an example of just in general. I mean, like people of color in this movie are treated as lesser than, and then most explicitly in that scene in the uh, pie shop that mm. just all of a sudden, like, what I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't even mean this as a criticism, but like, it turns out like Pie Man is evil, um, <laughs> yeah. like really abruptly. Like, mm-hmm. he, because we've just seen him as like, hey, welcome to the pie shop. I'm that hot guy who sells pies. And then it was like, I'm homophobic. And then he's like, and I'm racist. And then the yeah. scene is over. And mm-hmm. it's, I mean, 1962. And now there are certainly people like that. I was just like, whoa, whoa. And then the scene <laughs> is over and it doesn't come back. Um, <laughs> I have, so here, here are my thoughts on the matter. Sure. So a lot of people point out when discussing this movie that like, yeah, it's, it's an inclusive movie where, you know, you have, uh, the protagonist is a disabled woman. Um, her best friend is a black woman. Her other best friend is a queer man. Mm. And I think the movie is suggesting that like these are people who were on the fringes of society in the 60s like these are marginalized people sure who became friends because of kind of this common ground they share of being marginalized by you know like white able-bodied hetero michael shannon patriarchy mr michael shannon in the case of this movie specifically michael shannon (laughs) yes yeah so that you have this like quote-unquote diverse cast of uh main characters Mm. however i felt that the way some of these characters were portrayed and characterized in the movie felt like it was leaning into some stereotypes mm-hmm. where if you look at Zelda played by Octavia Spencer I mean she's yes. doing an incredible job and she's you know doing as much as she can with what she's given but I f- like this very much falls into the like black friend supporting a white protagonist and also I would argue like the sassy black friend stereotype yeah i think that this movie like attempts to give her a little bit more characterization with a subplot with her husband which i feel like doesn't really (sighs) cut cut the mustard in that case like if the only background you're going to be given is that she appears to be in an emotionally volatile relationship with her husband um right like that's all you're going to give us for a background for a character that as you're saying like does not as aggressively as many movies, but does fall back on some tropes. This movie feels very like, because it, I mean, because it was released early into the Trump years mm-hmm. and it, you can like, I, I, I can't quite like put my finger on like how, but you can, you can feel that. Yeah. Right. In a way that like, I don't even mean to be like disparaging towards the filmmakers, but it's just like, they're trying to be inclusive. They want to like make a statement, but it's like not 
really quite there, mm-hmm. but they really think they're doing something. It just that feels like a lot of early into the Trump years media, right? Especially because this was like trying been... to say everything at once and kind of saying not much and not executing it very well or very like intersectionally. No, um, right? Because like this movie came out in 2017, but it would have been shot you know, over the course of many months, if not like a full year before that, it would have been written and developed probably a couple years even before that. So like, but by the time the movie comes out, Del Toro is like speaking with specificity about this, where mm-hmm. um, I think he, he presented also because um, as like a story with parallels to the immigration experience. Mm -hmm. He said in an interview for this, which I think was like a lot of what he was touching on and was had to do with his personal connection to the story, as well as, you know, the really clear parallels between old monster movies, creature from the black lagoon Mm -hmm. specifically, Mm -hmm. obviously. But so he says, Quote, I feel it as an immigrant that has been received by this country, but I feel there is a sort of the demonization of the other very present. I needed to talk about the beauty of the other. So the way that he talks about this movie, I think he leans more on Doug Jones Fishman versus Mm -hmm. Eliza and Zelda Mm -hmm. and Giles, which I think is perhaps part of the reason that they are kind of softly stereotyped in some ways where it's like yeah the focus is we want the audience to empathize with the fish man because he represents the monster the other that has been used throughout cinematic history to look at me saying cinematic on my birthday. oh my goodness um, <laughs> happy birthday yeah mensa it's kind of <laughs> nuts uh but and and i get and i and i like it seems like it was at the core of his mission to take this monstrous quote unquote character that has been used as coding for a lot of marginalized groups mm-hmm. over the years mm-hmm. and to flip that and use this group of marginalized characters who see that in the monster, mm-hmm. empathize with him and encourage audiences to do the same. So he's encouraging people to look at media uh, from the past a little more critically, even if you love it. Mm-hmm. Always supportive of that. Like, I, I feel like I understand what his core mission is. I think it's like a good righteous mission to have right. that fits into his body of work really well. Because you could even, you could argue that for fucking Hellboy, right? Like <laughs> mm-hmm. this is like, a through line in his work that I think is really cool, but it's like we're saying it's, it's in the execution of like mm-hmm. that message is going to ring a little hollow. If you're falling back on tropes a lot of for tropes. the marginalized characters <laughs> that are like surrounding the fish guy. Right. Yeah. Because like, again, going back to Zelda, you have like, I feel like she's pretty one dimensional. And then the kind of one attempt to I give her so, a yeah. little bit more dimensionality is with this like subplot with her husband, which also just ends up playing into stereotypes of kind of like a deadbeat husband. Yeah. It gives her this moment of empowerment over him. Cause like, cause she stands up to him at the end, but like she has a girl boss moment, but that's also the scene where that happens is the first time we are like really meeting that character. Yeah. For so sure. Ultimately, it's hard to like I'm rooting for Zelda to have more of a character to work with but it, it's like the movie makes it hard for you to be like woohoo in that moment because we've never seen this guy before we've just right. heard about him in passing mm-hmm. and then the other black characters in the movie are 
either you only get tiny glimpses of them, you really learn nothing about them. And it feels like a lot of times they're just used to show that another character is racist. Yes. Or there's that there's a weird scene where Eliza is watching a newscast about civil rights protests Mm -hmm. and like violence enacted against protesters. And Giles Giles is like, like, turn "Turn that off. And it's like, what? Why is that? why is I was kind of curious what the message was behind that because I'm just like right I I, you know I would hear the writers out but I'm just like why include that like it just is really I think that that was just like a again a really lazy like way to remind you like the era that this is taking place Mm -hmm. in but it makes Giles seem very dismissive right towards the struggles of black Americans, which is doesn't appear to be canonical to his character at all, because later he is like, fuck you to the homophobic racist pie, pie shop guy, man. Right. Yeah. It just weird. feels like a way for the m- movie to acknowledge that that was what was happening at the time this movie takes place, because a lot of movies, right, period pictures from that time or movies that made in that time didn't acknowledge it right so it's like this movie is like we're acknowledging that this was taking place but it doesn't want to like engage with it really it is it does feel maybe this is like closer to the the trump era movie thing where it's like this movie i think has good intentions but is like biting off more than it can chew Mm -hmm. and it's trying to like not like solve obviously but it's like trying to address every societal ill and like especially not really (laughs) something that can be done in a two-hour movie especially in the michael shannon character because like oh my god literally patriarchy the guy yeah he's racist he's a misogynist he wants his wife to be silent during a sex scene that is for some reason in the movie that he also sexually harasses eliza he's like one of those like america number one guys he like very clearly has a very fragile male ego he's very classist to the point where and i think there's like interesting commentary here that like no one even considers he's amazing at playing this role like michael shannon as patriarchy the guy (laughs) he's very good at it but it's like like we've been talking about on the show for years now, beginning with our girl, with the dragon tattoo episode question mark. <laughs> like that's just kind of, and I, and it's like, you know, I can like hear defenders of this movie, which I have a lot of love for, for mm-hmm. the record. Mm-hmm. I chose it for my damn birthday movie. Yeah, I can hear defenders of this movie being like, well, it's a fair, it's a fairy tale. So the characters tend to be a little broad. Sure. True. But like, I feel like, you know, kind of cherry picking like what we're subverting and what we're not. Patriarchy the guy is just not an effective storytelling tool. I feel like at this point that should be obvious. Maybe I mean, but also I think that there was an element of cathartic energy behind Patriarchy the guy as a character early in the Trump administration. Um, only mm-hmm. because I, in my opinion, um, this movie came out. I think it came out post Me Too, but was certainly produced uh, pre. Mm. But you know because there were not a ton of public discussions about misogyny that were treated as culturally serious Mm. seeing patriarchy the guy taken down a peg and killed and blah 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 like there was some sort of i feel like there was a cathartic element to it for sure at that time yeah but now that things have moved on it's just like even if it is a cathartic storytelling tool for some people i'm kind of over it honestly (laughs) like i just don't think it's a very effective 
way to make any commentary because like we've talked about a million times, it's far more likely to experience, you know, discrimination of many kinds from a guy that is just kind of a guy. And that is the problem. And that's like Mm -hmm. why prejudice is so pernicious because it's just cooked into people that, you know, it's not like, I mean, there are, you know, bigoted supervillains out there unfortunately (laughs) and it seems like there's more all the fucking time but it just doesn't feel like the most powerful storytelling tool to wrap up every single prejudice in one guy Mm -hmm. and then kill that guy and be like we did it problem solved um yeah yeah i was i was starting to say that i think the most the way that his characters is or maybe not even his you can't even attribute this to his character specifically but the most effective use of commentary when it comes to people's prejudices in this movie mm-hmm. is that no one even suspects Eliza as being the fishman heister like stealer because of right. her like class and and position mm-hmm. and no one even considers that it, it could be you know like a cleaning person could pull this off sort of thing. Right. But other than that, yeah, I, I didn't, I thought that was like, that was one of the more effective. Yeah. Um, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, everything else was like, yeah, this just feels too cartoonish. Yeah. Like it's, it's very broad. I think also I just wanted to single out because Michael Shannon represents so much in this world. I just wanted to like single out a few things that I found particularly evil mm-hmm. <laughs> about him. Mm-hmm. He is, openly racist to Zelda's character like Mm -hmm. treats her as if she's like uneducated to the point where she is not able to understand what is going on around her or that she couldn't possibly understand what the people of a higher class who are mostly white like could be doing it's Mm -hmm. like incredibly patronizing he fetishizes Eliza Mm -hmm. for her disability Mm -hmm. and patronizes her for it and you know attempts to like he he assaults multiple people Mm -hmm. throughout the movie um i would say that that sex scene with his wife i mean it's very fucking gross but i think it also like really tiptoes up to the fucking line of fucking marital rape because you're he's like bleeding on her face and she's like can you not bleed on my face? And he's like, shut he's up. Like, shut up. Um, be silent. Didn't need that scene, but I guess we just need this to be the most evil guy in the entire world. <laughs> he represents America, whatever America's rotting corpse. I don't disagree, but like, <laughs> I don't need to see him, you know, harass, you know, like sexually mistreat his own wife. And also, also she did this thing that did you catch this? She like smelled his hand before she would have sex with him, which I think it means to imply that he is a serial cheater and comes home smelling like vagina. Oh, um, I didn't make that connection, but I I can see it. It just that marriage. Uh, I I feel for his his wife. I, I feel <laughs> for that character. We don't get to know her very well. Um, but yeah, like it, I just wanted to single out, especially like his fetishizing Eliza's disability. Mm-hmm. I just think it's like. Really gross. Certainly something that uh, I know happens in the world, but it just seems like, again, another like big issue to like take a bite out of and then essentially make no meaningful statement about outside of like, this is wrong, Mm -hmm. which is more than a lot of movies do. But it's just, I don't know. Yeah. Movies that try to attack every single um, problem in the world there. It's just there's not the bandwidth. 
I guess. Not in the shape of water. Uh, Going on the, continuing on that line of thinking, I wanted to touch on uh, queerness in the movie, uh, specifically when it comes to Giles' character. Richard Jenkins, icon. Love him. Love him. Love all of his cats. Yeah. His character's cats. R.I.P. the one. R.I.P. I I forget (laughs) what the cat's name was, but he just like so nonchalantly. Yeah. <laughs> he literally was like, eh, "It's okay." Does it He's pass just the Bechdel test? <laughs> when uh, Richard Jenkins is like, "The fish man ate my cat," and the cat has a name, does that pass the Bechdel test? The new dog ate my ho- the new dog <laughs> ate my homework. The fish man ate my cat. I can't come to work today. Oh, what was the cat's name? It was like it wasn't Sophocles, but it was like something like that. Anyway, it was yeah, something like that. <laughs> So Giles is a queer character and he, we see him be rejected. We see he's he's a lonely person. He constantly talks about how lonely he is all the time. And that's not coming from nowhere. You know, like feelings of isolation and loneliness are certainly something that a lot of queer people have experienced throughout history. Um, it's also implied that he is a recovering alcoholic recovering alcoholic and that he maybe was fired from his job possibly for For his alcoholism but also possibly for being gay that's yeah and that's never made explicitly like his side quest you get more with Giles than with any other secondary character but Mm -hmm. it still like doesn't land in a very satisfying way because you're like was he fired for like why even include addiction issues if like it just was confusing it's yeah. just, again too much too much going biting on. off more than it can chew yes so for me like to have your one queer character in the movie where like the movie goes out of its way to like show him be rejected by his crush and that only happens to motivate his choice to help out the straight protagonist and although like can we even call her straight when her sexuality includes being attracted to fish people my point is I felt like his queerness was just kind of used in the way that like racism and like the acknowledgement of the civil rights movement is just sort of like used to be like, well, yeah, we're touching on these things. Yeah, we're being inclusive, but like not meaningfully or not in a way that felt like. And only like tragically like it's. Yeah. Yeah. No one gets a satisfying romantic like all the relationships in this movie like don't end very well Mm -mm. because like uh, Eliza and the fish man have it best and they die uh (laughs) like Giles gets rejected Uh. Zelda gets like one up on her emotionally volatile husband who doesn't Mm -hmm. respect her but presumably Mm -hmm. they are she's still stuck in that marriage hard to say we know really nothing it's not like she's gonna leave him it doesn't seem like no idea i guess maybe the per the only person who wins is michael shannon's wife because he dies because he dies and now she is free from him but she seems to really be into him in confuse in a confusing way it seems like she well <sighs> confusing yeah <laughs> it just seems like relationship wise um it, it's all really it's sad bleak. at the end very bleak it's bleak um, but yeah, uh, that's, that's kind of all I had. Did you have anything else you wanted to discuss? Um, I just wanted to quickly, I mean, we, we sort of, uh, talked about it really quick, but the, the fish man, I love him. Uh, mm. I, I do think that the criticism of like, do we understand why 
these two characters fall in love with each other outside of metaphorical purposes. Right. Not really. I would have liked mm, to no. have seen more. Um, I also think it's like kind of very like fantastical and like whatever turning one culture into like a monolith to be like oh he's a south american god and you're like what mm. um mm-hmm. again like yet another of like it's clear that you know americans are mining this area for oil it's like the movie trying to comment on another societal ill mm-hmm. but it, but not really doing much with it glossing over it yeah i do think that like the way that the fishman is characterized is generally pretty cool like i know that he is supposed to be canonically a movie monster but i don't view him that way because we are like encouraged to empathize with him so much Mm -hmm. um we know that he's been through a lot we see you know how brutally mistreated he is and that being treated with compassion uh i i i I really love him i get the issues (laughs) surrounding the character um but i thought it was like he and eliza you know they 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 fuck and we celebrate that (laughs) and that is that whole uh sexual relationship felt to me like you know she initiated which is cool you don't see that in a movie a lot Mm -hmm. and um you know iconic that there's an oscar-winning fish sex movie that is really they can't take that from something us something you simply can't forget i do yeah. i love that female masturbation is represented on screen because yes. it rarely is yes as a normal part of a morning routine i love how horny that character is and just to um and it's normalized and it's normalized and again shout out to Kristen lopez's piece in the hollywood reporter we'll link to it as well um but Kristen writes about how disabled characters in media are often presented as lacking sexuality or not having any sexual desires Mm -hmm. and that media about characters with disabilities tends to focus on straight white men so shape of water presents kind of an interesting subversion to these tropes because it focuses on a disabled woman and Mm -hmm. allows her to be a very sexual being so you know i i appreciate that i appreciate a horny woman on screen i also liked that the movie didn't get like into her past sex life because i feel like that is like Mm. i don't know i just this movie is so chaotically trying to address everything that it's like we don't really know what her sexual past is but we know that like she let when she's like interested she's gonna let you know and it seemed like consent was above the board again you're like it's a fish man so we don't know but it it's felt it felt like there was some thought and care put into that mm-hmm. um yeah this movie is i don't know if it's if, if it quite goes into my guilty pleasure category mm. but you know on the right on the right day in the right mood shape of water you know it, it's it's a movie that i'll turn on sure because the the cast is so good the score also that's like kind mm-hmm. of out of our purview but the, i think the score yeah. is so beautiful yeah and Set i design. love the scene with the fish and the egg yes <laughs> it's i mean it's a be- it's a del toro movie it's like beautiful right and the fish man uh hot loves eggs and sex <laughs> and has a thigh gap and a really tight little butt yeah true so ultimately <laughs> i would say that it does pass the Bechdel test yes in a way on, that on the we often alone. don't come across 
<laughs> on the butt alone. It, it passes the Bechdel test in a way that we don't often come across because we are used to seeing like verbal spoken communication between characters of marginalized genders when it comes to a movie passing. But for example, many scenes, well, actually a lot of the conversations between Eliza and Zelda are either about the fish man, Zelda's unappreciative husband or Michael Shannon's character. Mm -hmm. Um, So they talk about men a lot. I think there are like isolated conversations where they are, you know, where they are not talking about a man, um, but communicating in a way that, again, like we don't often see on screen because yes. we don't often see uh, sign language being used as, as a way of communication. Um, so yes. just pointing that out, that it's nice to see representation of, of the Bechtel test being passed via sign language. Yes. I, yeah, I think that that is a rare pass. I also wanted to uh, shout out that there is... Um, there are two writers credited on this movie, obviously Guillermo del Toro, but also Vanessa Taylor. Mm-hmm. She's written a ton. She wrote the Divergent movie. She mm. wrote uh, on the new Aladdin movie, which uh-huh. that's not her fault. Um, <laughs> she wrote Shape of Water. She wrote on uh, Game of Thrones. Like she's, you know, cool. Oh, and she also, oh, this is, they don't leave with this. She wrote Hillbilly Elegy. Yikes. Oh. Well, look. <laughs> She's what I'm saying is uh, I, I I think that it is net positive that you know there that um, Del Toro uh, had a woman as a co-writer. Mm-hmm. So there you go. There is you know it's not just totally men 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 mm-hmm. uh, across the board. And that was a what is the name of that start? Two and a half men. I almost said two broke men. <laughs> <laughs> Two and a half men. Yeah, that's the name of that show. Men, 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 men. That's like the theme song. Is it? I've never watched an episode, Bravely. Oh, well, I had, uh, yeah, my my grandfather would have that show on in the background sometimes. And yeah, the theme song is just saying men like 20 times. Very cool. Very cool. Um, Anyways, Two Broke Men. let's write it um yeah uh yeah so let's let's go to the let's hit the nipple scale shall we let's do it uh zero to five nipples based on looking at the movie through an intersectional feminist lens for me uh, as we've discussed the del toro's intentions are clear he wants to he wants to subvert the traditional monster movie especially because there's been so much kind of like racist and other prejudice coding of monsters in monster movies throughout history mm-hmm. there is so i don't know if you can hear this very european sounding siren because oh. <laughs> i'm in amsterdam <laughs> barack cool um <laughs> so cool no, sorry that sounded mean <laughs> awesome i can't even wow. hear it so awesome yeah sorry for <laughs> for whatever's happening but um yeah, the, the the intentions are clear, and it's clear that Guillermo del Toro wanted to make a progressive story that subverts a lot of harmful tropes, and he wanted to be inclusive in his narrative. Unfortunately, the execution of a lot of these things just doesn't quite land or hit the mark. You You have various ableist implications. You have kind of a lot of tropes as it relates to 
race and and queerness in characters uh just a lot of things that again not executed very well which makes rating this tricky um because the intentions are good but the execution isn't great i guess i would give this like two and a half nipples that's what i was gonna do to me it's one of those like split down the middles I agree with you. Yeah, I, I, I'm i going to do two and a half as well because for, because of the reasons you are describing where it's like I, I do think that there was a lot of good intentions behind this movie. Uh, I think even five years later, the, uh, the kind of gaps in consulting and the gaps thigh gaps the the fish thigh gap first of all an attack uh, <laughs> fight or flight trigger uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> activated but yeah, like I, I, just a movie that had good intentions that bit off way more than it could chew, yeah. and uh, didn't do the consulting necessary to uh, attempt to chew? Question mark. <laughs> right. But it's a, a sweet movie with a with a good intention. Yeah. And so I feel like split down the middle makes sense. Um, who are you giving your nipples to? I will give one to Giles's cats. Mm-hmm. One to Mrs. Brown. In the movie Paddington. <laughs> Ooh. And I will give my half nipple. Oh, no. I want to give a nipple to Octavia Spencer because she's incredible. And she's often cast in roles that her full potential is. Yeah. Like, we don't we don't see her range. We don't see what she's capable of as an actor because many of the roles that she's cast in are just kind of fish food if you will (laughs) um but she's great so i'll give her one of my nipples and then i'll give my half nipple to mrs brown in paddington (laughs) okay um yeah i'm gonna give all my nipples to uh myself because it's my birthday oh my gosh happy birthday jamie sorry about it thank you do you have anything that you would like to plug i would like to plug uh my birthday i i would like to plug um yeah you know listen to ghost church listen to little, like listen to listen on to, to my other stuff mm-hmm. and kathy lolita mensa all the all the friends are here i would say pre-order the hot dog book but it's not possible yet but mm. oh believe will i be harassing you about that <laughs> i would say mainly for a birthday present for me in advance just remember to be kind and patient to me when i inevitably don't shut the fuck up about the pinocchio wars in november there's two pinocchios coming out this year mm-hmm. uh, i think that it's i can already feel a real fixation coming on yeah and uh it's just going to be something that's going to be a lot uh, on my mind in the coming months so please bear with me as i really get into there's so many Pinocchio adaptations and I can feel myself getting ready to watch maybe all of them wow I want to go into the Pinocchio wars with eyes wide open um I mean yes, welcome. I, w- I want to be a true witness welcome to the a legal pin- <laughs> a legal observer for the Pinocchio wars it's I'm on the sidelines and I'm keeping score wow Tom Hanks Geppetto versus who's the other Geppetto uh, Who's the other oh Geppetto? wait, no, I don't Who's remember. Don't Geppetto. Don't wait, know. really, it's really not you and McGregor, McGregor, right? Because he's he's it Jiminy Cricket. Even, no, 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 he's, he's Jiminy, Jiminy Cricket. Cricket. God oh, damn it! Crap, I don't remember. You're right. Oh God, I'm gonna have a meltdown. What? It, I think it's like maybe a character actor that we don't see very much. Um, um, it's probably Doug Jones, honestly. Oh, that would be <laughs> iconic. I would not forget. Uh, mm. 
It's it's a, it's a British guy. Oh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio versus Robert Zemeckis's. Let's mm-hmm. David Bradley. David, David Bradley, Bradley is is, oh, is yeah, Geppetto. He's Filch is. in Harry Potter. Okay. All right. Well, we gotta go. Yes. Can't wait for you to enter the Pinocchio verse, Jamie. Happy birthday. Love you so much. Thank you. Um, Love you. And follow us uh, on, the, on the Instagrams and stuff. Matreon. You're gonna want to listen to that uh, just off the wall Matreon episode in which we attempted to talk about Shape of Water and we never got around to it. Five dollars a month gets you two bonus episodes. Merch at tpublic.com slash the Bechtelcast. And with that it's my birthday so we have to go to medieval times yeah yeah bye bye bean dad the dress 30 to 50 feral hogs if you knew what any of those were you spend too much time online and hey i do too 16th minute of fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me jamie loftus and every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day who are they what made them so notorious how did the internet or the algorithm choose them And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.